Welcome to the John Campia Podcast, episode 19 for Friday, April the 29th, 2016. This episode of the John Campia Podcast is sponsored by geekfeed.com. Stuff your geek hole. Hey guys, and thanks for joining me on this special week-ending John Campia podcast. Today's a special podcast. It's an Ask Me Anything day with all questions taken directly from my Facebook page where you guys have been leaving me questions. That's what we're doing today, taking your questions. So sit back, relax. The John Campia podcast starts right now. Hey there, guys, and welcome to the show for this newest episode of the John Campia Podcast. I, of course, am John Campia, and thank you so much for uh, downloading and listening to the show. Hey, for those of you who follow me on social media, and uh, if you don't, why not? Anyway, you can follow me on social media on Twitter, simply at John Campia. Follow me on Facebook, at John Campia. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, or Facebook specifically, you know, every once in a while, every maybe about once a month, I'll throw up a post on Facebook that says, okay, guys, like for the next 30 minutes, I'm going to answer as many questions as I can about anything you want. Go. And it always ends up getting two, three, four, five hundred questions in like 30 minutes. Uh, and it's always fun. So I thought, why not try that for an episode of the podcast? So that's what I did earlier today. I jumped on my Facebook and I said, hey, guys, today's John Can't Be a Podcast is going to be an all ask me anything kind of question, uh, kind of show. And sure enough, the inbox flood. Now, I haven't read over them. I'm just going to read through these questions as they are, and I'll try to answer them as shortly as I can. So I am I'm not going to go too in-depth on any of the answers. I'm going to try to answer a question because right now there's about 250 questions in there, and there's probably going to be more by the time we get too close to the end of this podcast. So I want to answer as many questions as I can. Uh, but hey, listen, before we do, I want to encourage you. That if you like the John Campia podcast, and I know not everybody does, but if you happen to be one of those special few people that likes the John Campia podcast, can you do me a favor? Pause the podcast right now. Open up iTunes and find the John Campia podcast in iTunes and rate and comment on this podcast. It helps me out a great deal uh, without you having to like uh, me having a Kickstarter or anything for you guys to send me money. All you need to do, open up iTunes and rate and comment on the John Campia podcast, and that helps me out a great deal. So with all that out of the way, I'm a little bit excited, a little bit nervous, because I do not know what questions are in here, but I'm going to hammer through as many of these as I can, and uh, we'll see where that leads us. All right. And, and by the way, guys, I'm going to try to read the names of the people who left questions. If you guys know this, I am horrible at pronouncing names. So if I butcher your name, please forgive me in advance. All right. So with that said, we're going to start with Pen hmm, Pankaj Mishra, who writes, have you watched Salem? It's a fantastic show, especially season two. Actually, I have not watched Salem yet. I've barely even heard of it, but I do remember hearing about it, but I have not watched it yet. Uh, so, but thank you for giving me a show to put on my list to watch. Next question. Bobby Stark Jaramillo writes, why haven't you been on Collider lately? No Jedi or heroes? Um, I'm sure this question will probably come up a couple of times. Uh, people have been asking, why haven't I been around Collider at all? Um, and because I'm still supposed to be on Heroes and Jedi Council and do some special stuff here and there. And, you know, we did the Captain America uh, Winter Soldier DVD commentary the other day. I was not there. I haven't been on Heroes the last couple of weeks. I haven't been on Jedi Council the last couple of weeks. 
it has all just been because of scheduling. Um, as you guys know, I have my brand new show with Comic-Con HQ starting up here very soon. And we're in the, the, the final stretch now of getting everything prepared and done for that show. And my attention is really being pulled in a million different directions. That, and there was like one Heroes episode a couple times ago. We had like two special guests. So one of our regular panelists couldn't be on the show. So I just told Schnepp, hey, let's uh, like, because Robert Meyer Burnett was a big fan of one of these. Actually, Robert and Amy were both big fans of this one comic book artist that was coming on. And I said, look, I'll just sit this one out just so that there's room at the table and Amy and Robert can geek out with one of the, with this special guest. Go for it. Um, but, and then the last couple, you know, Jedi councils and heroes has just been scheduling. So don't worry. I will be back on heroes and I will be back on Jedi council. Uh, it's just that it has been an incredibly slammed, uh, number of days and, uh, just hasn't worked out, but it's just been a scheduling problem. All right, let's move on now. Next question comes from Nick Podiat who writes, how did you come up with the opening music for your podcast? Oh, it's very, very simple. Uh, I found this. There's a, a couple of very, very good royalty-free music uh, websites that you can go to where you can purchase a license. I think the music I purchased for this podcast, I simply purchased for like 50 bucks. And it gives me a license that I can use it for this podcast. I can't use it for whatever I want, but I can use the, the uh, music for this podcast and it's it's safe, it's legal. Uh, I, there's some great quality music out there, and I just found a piece of music that I really liked, and uh, I went and I purchased a license for it. So that's the simplest way I can answer that. Uh, all right, uh, Efren Guzman writes, "Your favorite place you ever visited?" Um, I've visited some really fun places, but uh, this is not going to surprise any of you. My favorite place that I ever visited was Skywalker Ranch. Was when I went to go to Lucasfilm Skywalker Ranch, met George Lucas. Um, that place is amazing. Like all, if you haven't looked it up, look up because it looks totally different than you imagine. What would Skywalker, you know, the place where they created, you know, all this stuff for Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones and Star Wars must be so high. Well, get online and look up pictures of Skywalker Ranch. It is gorgeous and beautiful. And I visited Skywalker Sound when I was there. It is absolutely my favorite place I've ever visited is Skywalker Ranch. All right, moving on to the next question. Justin Riley says, why does it confuse you when people say they don't like Man of Steel? Because Man of Steel is a masterpiece. Flat out, Man of Steel is a masterpiece. And it confuses me that people don't see it. Now, don't get me wrong. All film is subjective and it's cool. If you're one of those people out there that do not like Man of Steel, that's cool. I'm not going to accuse you of being bribed by uh, by Marvel to say you don't like it. I'm not going to be one of those people. It's cool if you don't like Man of Steel. But it's just it's one of those films that I watch and I'm like, this film is just brilliant. The themes and sub-themes, the layered context in the movie, the symbolism in the movie, the flow of the movie. I just think it's a, a freaking wonderful, wonderful film. And so because I just have such a high regard for it, it really does confuse me that there are a good number of people out there who don't appreciate the film the way I do. And that's totally cool. That's totally fine. But I do find it a bit confusing. Simple as that. All right. The next question comes to us. Who does this come to us from? This comes to us from uh, Lewis Wilkerson, who writes, other than comic book or Star Wars universes, do you see any movie cinematic universes rumored that have the potential to be good or entertaining? Well, here's the thing. Anything you suggest as a cinematic universe has the potential 
to be a good and entertaining thing, right? <clears throat> it's just like a movie. Somebody would say to me, hey, John, do you think if, um, I don't know, if a Pokemon live action movie and it had a good director and a good cast and a good writer and a real good script and good producers, do you think it could be good? And you guys have heard me say this before. Yeah, but I could create, I could make a, a movie about a Felipe the sentient dancing microphone. Sounds like a stupid concept, but if you have a good script and a good director and good producers and a good studio behind it and a good cast, it has the potential to be great. Anything does. Anything has the potential to be great. Anything has the potential to be awesome. How much potential does the starting idea have? I just find it funny when people want to put in that, if it has a good director and a good script, well, okay, yeah, if you have all of that, then anything could be good. Sure, anything could be good. But at the same time, anything could be bad at the same time. So... Um, as far as do I think any other movie cinematic universe has the potential to be good or anything, they all do. Anything that that is that you could make a shared cinematic universe out of absolutely has the potential to be good. The question is how much potential does it have to be bad? All right, let's move on to the next question. This one comes to us from Spencer Johnston, who writes, Thoughts on Carl Urban wanting to do Dread for Netflix or Amazon and its likeliness of happening. Well, I mean, look, the fact that an actor who gets paid to do a job says, I would love to continue to get paid to do that job, that shouldn't surprise anybody. I love Carl Urban. Uh, you guys know I've done some things with Carl Urban in the past. I think he, he uh, you know, I did some stuff with Dread at Comic-Con. I hosted their premiere at Comic-Con. Uh, I got together, I got to do uh, like Q&A with the movie with Carl Urban. I had Carl Urban was gracious enough to be on my panel at Comic-Con one year as well. C Carl is amazing. And I think he's a fantastic actor. I just love him. And he was awesome as Dread. I mean, flat out awesome as Dread. And I love that movie. I thought it was going to be a piece of crap that dread movie. But look, let's call it what it is. The movie was a spectacular failure. Not quality-wise. I thought it was a great movie. But it absolutely flopped. And uh the studio people I've talked to seem to have no interest um in revisiting it and revisiting that beating they took at the box office. Um I so I think the likeliness is low, but you know, there's some people who say absolutely impossible. And what I have learned in this business is never say absolutely impossible. We've seen stranger things happen. But the likelihood, if you're asking me that, is what is the likelihood? I'm, I'm going to stick with saying that the likelihood is probably pretty slim. And the fact that Carl Urban says he wants to do it, that means nothing. That means absolutely nothing. Actors have absolutely zero pull and zero sway. Uh, in this business. Now, there are some exceptions to that, of course, but 99.99999% of the time, an actor has absolutely zilch, zero polar sway uh, as to what does get made and what doesn't get made unless they're paying for it themselves. And I'm sure if Carl Urban says, hey, let me put up the 30 million it'll cost to make a, a relatively low budget, uh, you know, dread follow up, then maybe, but unless he's willing to write the checks himself, it's it's unlikely. All right, the next question comes from Zach Morrison. Um, and Zach says, where would you like to see the Star Wars story go after The Force Awakens? Uh, honestly, I get to ask this question all the time. And honestly, I don't care. I, it's, I love Star Wars because they're taking me on a journey. And them, them, like Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm taking me on this journey is 
in better hands than if I set the direction of the, of the journey. You know what I mean? That's just my mentality as a film fan. I want to see where you're going to take me. You're telling me I'm tucked into bed. I got the blankets up just under my chin and I'm ready for the story. So just tell me the story. You take me on this journey. You take me on this adventure. And for me personally, I, I don't really have any place I want them to go with it. Are there some cool elements I'm looking forward to seeing? Yes, absolutely. But as far as where does the story go, I don't have really an opinion. I just want to sit back tucked into bed with the blankets pulled up under my chin and I just want to be taken away in that story and see where they're going to take me as opposed to me kind of having a thought on where I want the story to go. So that's that's my quick answer to that. All right. This next question comes to us from Matthew Graham. And Matthew asks, are you looking forward to the Sons of Anarchy spinoff shows? Yeah, look, I keep hearing about, hey, Brad Pitt this and they're doing Sons of Anarchy that. And... I got to tell you, I look, I'm on board for all of it. I freaking love Sons of Anarchy. I absolutely adore that show. Like, I, you have no idea how much I like that show. And the idea that they're going to come back and give us more Sons of Anarchy, obviously, it'll be a, a different cast and set in a different timeline and all that kind of crap. But I just love that world. What I always equated Sons of Anarchy to is, and this is going to sound like it's a very odd comparison, but I always kind of compared it to um, Entourage. Now, John, what on earth does Entourage have to do with Sons of Anarchy? The thing is, I you always hear people say with Entourage, one of the big pieces of appeal for Entourage was that it was lifestyle porn. And in that sense, they that people love to live vicariously. The notion of what, um, you know, these guys, Turtle and E and, and um, you know, what these guys do and the life that they lead, we as an audience, men, women, all over the place, we kind of, if it's lifestyle porn, live in the Hollywood lifestyle with these guys. And that's kind of, that was the backbone of, of Entourage, right? It wasn't their plot. It was just them living the lifestyle in Hollywood. It was kind of lifestyle porn. And so much of that became so appealing to so many audience members. And I've always kind of felt that, especially for male audiences, but also for female audiences as well, that that principle of quote-unquote lifestyle porn was kind of there as well for Sons of Anarchy. Now, it wasn't that we want to wear, you know, never only take baths every four days, like apparently the guys um, in the Sons of Anarchy did, but it was this notion of brotherhood. When Sons of Anarchy was at its best was when we as the audience could see these guys and their absolute unshakable unbreakable and unrelenting bond, dedication, and loyalty to each other. And I think especially, well, I, I am a man, so I can only speak from a man's perspective. I can't speak for a woman's perspective. But for, so from a man's perspective, I can tell you that there's something about that that is so appealing because that kind of bond, that kind of brotherhood, that these guys in the Sons of Anarchy showed to each other, even though they did some very nasty things, was so appealing to a lot of men. Again, I'm only saying from men because I am a man and therefore I can only speak from the man's perspective. But was so appealing to so many men because that kind of brotherhood, that kind of loyalty amongst men to each other 
is something that a lot of us found very, very appealing. And there's not a lot of in the world. It's tough to come across that level of dedication and loyalty and honor to each other. And I think in that sense, Sons of Anarchy was very much like lifestyle porn, much like the way Entourage was lifestyle porn, just very, very different stuff. So am I excited for the idea of more Sons of Anarchy, whether it's a movie, whether it's an original nine, whether it's a Mayans, whether it's whatever direction they go in? Because I've heard a lot of different reports. I'm all for it. I'm all for it, and I, I will look forward to checking it out, and I can't wait. All right. Next question comes from Joe Messina, who writes, You are running Warner Brothers or DC. Who would you appoint to be the president of production for the DC Cinematic Universe? Um, good question. Look, that is one thing. The, the, the biggest answer there is, first start with anybody. Just get somebody in charge, because right now, ain't nobody in charge. There's no one distinct voice in charge. Look, what you've got at Marvel, and I'm not saying one, you know, Marvel's better than Disney, or Marvel's better than uh, DC, DC's better, no, no, no. But I think what even most DC fans, and I am a DC fan, but what most DC fans will say, too, is that one of our frustrations, being a fan of DC films, is that there is such a disconnected... um authority chain when it comes to the DC movies. Like with Marvel, there's a great team. Yes, they have a great team of people, but everything funnels through Kevin Feige. There's that one guy. Now that can have its advantages and it can have its disadvantages. But one of the advantages is, is that it makes sure that one coherent vision and one coherent tone, even though you know, Captain America Winter Soldier is such a different movie from Ant-Man, which is such a different movie from the first Thor, which is such a different movie from the new Civil War. Yet there is that consistency of feel and tone, even though they are radically different movies. And there's also a sense of one consistent vision going through all of them. And that is one of the advantages you get when you get a Kevin Feige type in charge of your cinematic universe. You know, for a while, I thought Kevin Sujihara over at the chairman over at Warner Brothers, who I'm actually a big fan of Kevin Sujihara. I kind of thought he was going to be that guy, but he has not been that guy. Uh, it's not that he's failed. He just hasn't. That's not what he's positioned himself to be. And right now, and granted, we are on the outside looking in. But from the outside looking in, it looks like there are 50 cooks in this kitchen. And it looks like something happens during a movie and like 18 different executives of Warner Brother want to throw in their two cents worth and it gets and projects get pulled in different directions and things like that. DC, Warner Brothers definitely could use a Kevin Feige type. Now, as far as that goes, a lot of people will say like, oh, Jeff John should be there. Mm. No, because what what talent or gift has Jeff John shown in producing movies? None. Um, so I, I wouldn't go that way. It look and whoever heard of Kevin Feige before Kevin Feige became Kevin Feige, who had ever heard of him? The thing is, they found they got a really smart guy who just knew what he was doing, who came up through the ranks and became that guy. That's the important thing. The talent was the important thing. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I am kind of a little bit less interested right now in who Warner Brothers gets to be their Kevin Feige type. I am more interested that they get somebody to, that's the start, get somebody to be your Kevin Feige and this overall shepherd, this 
this magnifying glass that will focus in on the direction of this DC Cinematic Universe. Because right now I'm hearing such wildly different things coming from Aquaman that we're hearing coming from Wonder Woman that we're hearing coming from Justice League. It's just, I feel like they need somebody in that role. Who it is is less important to me right now than Warner Brothers at least acknowledging, hey, we need that. We need a shepherd. We need somebody to shepherd this. Um, And let's go out and find that person. That's the most important thing to me. All right. Ryan Durante writes, um, what are your highest hopes for DC movies? Uh, hashtag the Batman. Oh, I got huge hopes for Batman, dude. I mean, look, they finally made it official. Worst kept secret in Hollywood. But Ben Affleck is co-writing and will direct the new standalone Batman film. They haven't named a date for it yet or any kind of stuff like that. I got. I expect it's not going to be that far away. Uh, I think they're going to fast track that Batman movie with Ben Affleck directing. Um. I am so I'm super stoked for that. I got a lot of high hopes because I just I believe in David Ayer as a director, and therefore I have high hopes for um, Suicide Squad because David Ayer is directing it, and he's got a solid cast there too, and the trailers have been very good. Um, so I have some pretty high hopes and expectations for that. I don't know what to think of Wonder Woman. Um, I hmm, they brought a writer on board that raises question marks for me. Uh, I think they got a very gifted director to come in, but I look, I I'm sorry guys. While Wonder Woman, the character was a standout character in Batman V Superman. Again, I, I just don't think Gal Gadot is a very good actress. And uh, maybe someday she will become a very good actress, but she's not this again, just my opinion. She's not very good. And I do not think um, she did all that well. I think that's one of the reasons she had so few lines given to her. Um, And look, everybody's favorite parts of Wonder Woman and Batman versus Superman are the parts that Gal Gadot's not speaking. Look, that's just the way it is. She doesn't talk during that big fight that she's involved in, in which the character was awesome. But that's on the director. Uh, We didn't really have to see Gal Gadot act much. Although, you know, give, give the devil their due. That one scene in Batman v Superman, and if you haven't seen it, you should have seen it by now, but that one scene where Doomsday throws Wonder Woman and she goes sailing, she's rolling on the ground and comes to her stop. There's one thing that Gal Gadot does that is actually really, really cool. And that is when she stops rolling, because Wonder Woman just got tossed like a rag doll by Doomsday, she looks kind of up, wipes, I think she wipes like a touch of blood from her lip, if I'm remembering it right, and gives this really great smile. Like she was like one was like, yes, a real fight. Like she was so happy that Doomsday just knocked her around, right? That was awesome. And from what I understand, um, because I was who was I talking to? I think it was Tiffany Smith and I were talking. And Tiffany interviewed uh, Gal Gadot. And Tiffany, I believe, now f- correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Tiffany asked her, like, so, like, did Zach tell you to do that? Did Ben Affleck tell you to do that? She goes, no, I just, we did the scene and I just did that one take. She just did it herself. She took it on herself to do that one little smile. And they thought it was awesome and they kept it. So, hey, look, I'm, I'm hard on Gal Gadot as, as an actress. I don't think she's very good, all that kind of stuff. But give her a due. That was my highlight moment with Wonder Woman in Batman v Superman. And that was all her. So, hey, give her a credit, man, because that, that one shot, that that little smile after getting knocked around by Doomsday, man, that was pretty spectacular. So 
very high hopes for the Batman and very high hopes for uh, Suicide Squad. So, uh, and very curious, very curious about Aquaman. Um, I love the casting of Jason Momoa. So we'll see where um, we'll see where all of that takes us. All right, let's get a few more in here. Uh, Will J. Rev Brandt writes. Are you still on Collider Heroes and Jedi Council? Haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Once again, answer that question uh, near the top. So, of course, it's just been a scheduling thing. Uh, Aaron Bailey writes, If you had to choose your favorite emotional scene from any comic book movie, what would it be? There have been some wonderful emotional scenes in comic book movies. I mean, you haven't, you guys, most of you, I should say, have not had a chance to see Civil War yet. Um, There is that great moment that is in the trailer. Whereas like, sorry, Tony, he's my friend. So was I. It's a great moment. But for me, I actually go back and most of you, this will surprise you because I don't think as many of you saw the emotional gravitas in the scene the way I saw it personally, the way it hit me as an individual at any rate. It goes back to the original Thor when it's right near the end of the film and Loki wakes up and he saves... Thor and Loki from both falling into the abyss. And of course, eventually Loki does fall into the abyss. But there's that moment where like Loki, this is one of the reasons why Loki is such a freaking amazing villain. And maybe other than the Red Skull, probably the only decent villain Marvel has given us so far. But there are so many layers of emotion to Loki and so many layers of motivation to Loki. Loki is evil. He's chaos. He's all this kind of stuff. But at its core, he loves his father. And when you go back to that first movie, all he ever wanted was the approval of his father. That's all he wanted. And I think it caught a lot of people by surprise when coming near the end of Thor, when Loki actually saves Odin uh, from the Frost Giants. Loki actually kills the King of the Frost Giants to save Loki. Now, granted, he's the one who set it all up, but still, he didn't want any harm to his dad. He loves his father. All he wants more than anything else is the approval and the affection of his father. And the scene is right near the end of the first Thor. Loki and, and Thor are finishing their fight and they're about, both about to fall into the abyss. And Lo, and uh, Odin, I should say, not Loki. Odin saves them. And there's that quick exchange between Loki and Odin. And like Loki is pleading with him, but I, you know, I did it for you, that sort of thing. And Odin just says, no, Loki. And that, when he says no, Loki, to him, when Odin says that, Loki becomes so devastated to his core. Because remember, at his core, that was Loki's motivation. That was Loki's deepest desire is to impress and stand out to his father. That when Odin looks at him and says, no, like you didn't do all this for me. This was for you. And he just says, no, Loki. That devastates Loki so much that he gives up on life and lets go and hurls himself into the abyss. That's how devastating just those words from his father were, no, Loki. And to me, that scene is just beautiful and only able to be crafted by a master storyteller like Kenneth Branagh. Um, And that is one of the reasons why I think that first Thor movie, and it's like Man of Steel, man. I know there's a lot of people out there who don't appreciate the first Thor movie the way I do, but I watch that movie and I see brilliance. 
I see absolute brilliance. And anyway, that one scene is just kind of uh, one of the highlights for me. All right, going to take a quick break here from the questions, and we are going to take a word from our sponsor. Geekfeed.com, the world's greatest dedicated geek newsfeed, providing you with fresh, juicy, up-to-the-minute breaking news and shareable content on all things geek. It's the place to get your geek fix. They eat and sleep nothing but geek, scouring the interweb to serve up some seriously tasty geek nuggets. So get ready to cram every orifice with the very latest from the world of comics, games, TV, and movies. Chow down on the funniest vines and memes. Feast your eyes on the latest trailers, posters, and fan art. So make sure you connect with geekfeed.com, both on their website, www.geekfeed.com, and on all their social media platforms, at geekfeed, D-O-T-C-O-M. That's at geekfeed, D-O-T-C-O-M. And we here at the John Campia Podcast would like to thank the good folks at geekfeed.com for their support. All right, guys, and we're back. And now we move on to more questions that you guys have sent in. This one comes from John Redden, and he writes, Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Dude, I have been and I continue to be a Team Cap guy all the way. Love love Iron Man, but I am a Team Cap guy. Um, Michael K. writes, Favorite cinematic pet? Ooh, favorite cinematic pet. Um, if I think more about it, maybe I'll come up with a different answer. But uh, John Wick's dog, John Wick's puppy, that that might have to be my favorite cinematic pet. Um, let's move on. Hunter David Morby writes, rank your top five Batman actors and what you hope the solid the solo Batman film is about. Well, again, like the Star Wars question, what do I hope the Batman film's about? I don't care. Just tell me a good story. Take me on that journey. Um, don't do what I want you to do. Do something great on your own and I'll just sit back and enjoy the journey. And I think Ben Affleck is one of the best directors in the business right now. So I'm really excited that he's directing it and I'm sure he's going to give us something very, very cool. Uh, top five Batman actors. Uh, I'm going to go look, remember I'm going to answer this question in terms of who did the best as Batman, as opposed to who's the best actor who just so happened to play Batman at one time. Okay. I'm going to answer the question. Which actor has done the best job playing Batman? I'm not answering the question. Out of all the actors who just happen to play Batman, rank them as far as how great of actors they are. Because those two lists would look different. All right. Because my number one guy, I think the guy who has nailed Batman slash Bruce Wayne the best is Ben Affleck. I think he has nailed who Batman is and who Bruce Wayne is better than anybody else has. Now, if we were asking the question, who is the best actor that just happened to play Batman, I'm going to give that to Christian Bale. Christian Bale is the best actor out of any actor, any of the actors who have played Batman. Christian Bale is the best actor. But as far as who played Batman the best, I'm going to stick with, uh, um, I'm going to stick with Ben Affleck. Then probably, I know some people attempt to put in Michael Keaton there, but I'm, I think Christian Bale did a very, very good job as Batman. I'll go Christian Bale, I'll then go Michael Keaton, I'll then go Val Kilmer, and then I'll go George Clooney, wrapping up the final five. Um, so yes, there you go. All right, next question. Ravi Vaziarani writes, have you rewatched Interstellar? How do you think it holds up? Yeah, I rewatched Interstellar a number of times, and I still feel the same way I did before. I think it's a I think it's a very good movie. 
But it's a movie to me that collapses under its own weight, much like a black hole. Um, uh, ironically enough, I, I feel like the movie collapses under its own weight sometimes and gets in its own way. And sometimes I feel like Nolan sacrificed coherent storytelling for the sake of a lofty idea. And isn't that a Nolan film? Isn't Nolan like the master of high concept ideas blended with incredibly fluid and coherent storytelling all in one? That is one of Christopher Nolan's earmarks. That is what makes him one of the best directors in the business. But I felt like in Interstellar, I felt like the two high concepts versus fluid, coherent storytelling sometimes clashed against each other in that movie and didn't quite work. Um, so honestly, rewatching Interstellar for me was a mixed bag because while the really good things about Interstellar become bigger and better to me as I watch the film, I think the weaknesses of Interstellar also become bigger and worse um, when I watch the film at the same time. So yeah. It's just to the point where most Christopher Nolan movies, I can sit down right now. If you like, if you walked in my front door right now and say, hey, let's sit down and watch The Prestige. I'm like, hell yeah, let's sit down and watch The Prestige. If you walked in and say, hey, John, let's watch some Insomnia. I'll be like, hell yeah, let's watch some Insomnia or anything like that. I will sit down and watch those with you. But Interstellar is probably one I would take a pass on watching again. That That's just my opinion. Personally, I feel the weakest of the Christopher Nolan movies. Um, and it's still a movie I think is good. So that te- that tells you something about Christopher Nolan when the, his worst film is still one that I think is a good movie. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. This one comes from Matt Gerald Santiago, who writes internships at Comic Con HQ. Uh, I get asked that question a lot, and the answer, unfortunately, is no. I um, there's a lot of legal things. Everybody just thinks an intern you can just get an intern in. They that means you get free labor, and that's not the way. Where there are actually laws in place some very specific laws about what a quote-unquote intern can and cannot do. And then it becomes a question about then, is it even valuable to have an intern there? Um, so I've always kind of shied away from having interns because of the legal situation that surrounds it. I just want to protect my team and my organization that I work with and not expose them to legal risk. And so while I'm sure there are ways, perfectly right and legal ways to do internships, to me it's a very thorny undertaking and I just kind of um, uh, keep keep out of it. So no plans right now to have any internships uh, with myself at Comic-Con HQ, but who knows? Things change. So keep your ears open. All right. This one comes from Dax Reiner Boatwright, who writes, how essential is the best boy to making a feature film? Um I'll be honest with you. I've been on many movie sets. I have made many movies and I, I'm not even completely sure on what the best boy does. (laughs) Fabulous question that I cannot answer. All right. Uh, Next question here. And this next question comes from Angelo Thomas, who writes, why is Disney the only studio who has been able to nail the live action fairy tale in the past few years? Universal and Warner brothers have tried uh, to get in there with such movies as Jack the Giant Slayer, Pan, and The Huntsman, but haven't really been able to succeed like Disney has. Do you think The Legend of Tarzan and Jungle Book Origins will continue this trend or break it? Well, let, let's remember, um, Angelo, 
Disney hasn't crushed all their fairy tale. Look, the, the, was Cinderella awesome? Yes, Cinderella was awesome. I thought they did such a great job at that. But Maleficent, I think, was a failure of a film. It made money. Don't don't get me wrong. It made money, but as a film, it was a to me it was a bad movie. Alice in Wonderland, I thought, was a terrible movie. Like just terrible. Visually gorgeous, breathtakingly beautiful. But honestly, I thought it was a bad movie. I, I did not think it was very good at all. Now, Disney, we got Beauty and the Beast coming. And I'm so excited for their Beauty and the Beast. And they got a whole bunch of other ones. And they just nailed their Jungle Book. But is Jungle Book really a fairy tale? Well, it depends on on how, you know, what kind of semantics you want to use there. Uh, but Jungle Book was awesome and fabulous. But let's not pretend like Disney has perfected the art of the live action fairy tale. They have not. They've knocked one or two out of the park and they've totally busted and dropped the ball on a couple of them. So, you know, translating those ain't so easy. Funny thing is this latest one, the Huntsman from Universal, I think I might actually like it more than most people. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not running out and like, and encouraging people to run out and see the Huntsman. I'm not. Um, But I think, I think the Huntsman had its upsides and I actually think it was more watchable than Snow White and the Huntsman. I actually think this sequel was an improvement on that. I feel like they stripped it down, got to the very basics of their, you know, most basic level of storytelling and just told their story from that point on. And some of the action felt pretty cool. I liked the chemistry between the two lead characters. Um, Yeah. Was the Huntsman, the new one, a great movie? No, no, it's not. But I... I'm not as hard on it as most other people. I think that, I, like I said, I think it had some of its upside. But look, what is proving here is not that Disney is awesome at translating fairy tale movies and everybody else is not. Because like I said, Disney has swung and missed on a couple of them. I think what is becoming apparent is that translating any classic fairy tale or story into the big screen is difficult. And ultimately too, here's the bigger truth. Making a good movie is hard. Like so many people out there just think, oh, just make a good movie. Like everybody talks like making a good movie is the easiest thing in the world. It's not, man. It is nigh impossible. It is so hard to make a great movie. It's really hard. Then on top of that, it becomes even more difficult when you're trying to create a great, you know, fairy tale live action. Well, now you're making it doubly hard. So what I take away from all this, Angelo, is not that Disney has nailed it and everybody else is failing. The thing I take away from this whole thing is that it is freaking difficult to make these things good. Disney has succeeded on a couple of occasions, but on a couple of occasions, even Disney has whiffed. So it's it's a tough thing, man. It's a really tough thing. Let's see what happens with Beauty and the Beast, man, because I'm so freaking excited for that. All right. This next one comes from Joe Messina, who writes, What do you think has been the most influential film the past 25 years on today's new filmmakers? Oi, I, I can't answer that. That That's a question, once again, that's the drawback of me just reading these questions for the first time. I'd actually have to sit down for about five minutes and think about that and look over the films of the past 25 years. So uh, I'm going to have to take a pass on that question. It's a great question, but I just can't answer it in this format. Uh, next question comes from Jenny Hahn. And Jenny Hahn writes, will you continue your podcast, this podcast we're doing right now, after the launch of Comic-Con HQ? Um, great question. My plan is to continue the podcast. 
I guess it's impossible to say though until I'm in the situation where we get where Comic Con HQ is up and running, and how much of my time does it really take? I've got to believe at least once a week I'll have the opportunity to just sit down at my computer in my office and record a podcast. So my guess right now is yes, unless for some reason the good folks at Comic Con or Lionsgate don't want me to do a podcast because they want my attention focused on the new Comic Con HQ show. Um, that might get in the way, but as far as my plan right now is yes, to continue doing the John Campion podcast. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, Joe Vaughn wrote, writes, whatever happened to your host? Yeah. A bunch of you might remember that episode one, I had a co-host and the plan was to do shows with a co-host. Unfortunately, what I found was, look, one of the keys to me being able to do a podcast is that it is fast and simple and easy, and I can do it anytime. I can just sit down because I've got my recording studio in my place, so I can just sit down and record them. And that's the only way I can get these done because my life's kind of busy, just like all of us. We all have busy lives, and I have a busy life too. And so what I realized was trying to coordinate with another person as far as timing as to when we shoot. Um, then having to do the post-production on it, which is, which, t- which is time consuming as well as trying to prep that person for that day's show. It just, I did one show with a host and then the next one I did solo and I just found doing it solo was so much easier. Look, I think my podcast would be better if I had a co-host. I think it would be better if I still had a co-host. I do. But the reality is I don't think I could do my podcast anymore if I had a co-host because it introduces a whole bunch of other variables that I, because now I can't just, Hey, I got, I got a spare time right now. I can sit down my computer and do it. And I don't have to coordinate with other people. I don't have to get other people caught up to speed. I don't have to do the extra post-production that's involved when you have a second audio feed coming in. It's just, it's tough. And so uh, I made the decision just to do the podcast solo. So that's what happened to the host. Thank you for asking. Um, let's see. Uh, Arcia Utomo writes, do you think Inhumans will be replaced by Iron Man 4? Uh, it's possible. For those of you who don't know what he's talking about, remember Kevin Feige announced at the big um, Marvel Phase 3 event a year and a half ago that there was going to be an Inhumans movie coming. I believe it was 2019. Well, as we talked about on the last podcast, the Inhumans are now off the table. There will be no Inhumans movie, at least not in the foreseeable future. But, you know, Robert Downey Jr., now that he clearly has probably a lifetime contract with Marvel, uh, he said in a recent interview that he would be up for doing another Iron Man 4. He said he thinks he's got one more solo Iron Man movie in him. Um, So could they have dropped Inhumans? to do Iron Man 4. I do not think they dropped Inhumans so they could do an Iron Man 4. I think they dropped Inhumans because of the drama going on between Ike Perlmutter running Marvel television versus Kevin Feige running Marvel movies and the history and apparently the bad blood between those two. I think that has to do with why Inhumans the movie got dropped. I don't think it has anything to do with Iron Man 4. But could an Iron Man 4 movie take that in humans release date. It's possible. It's possible. Tony's been talking to Tony. Robert Downey Jr. has been talking about it. So it is possible. Keep your eyes open for that. All right. The next one comes from Sam Macias, who writes, what is the best advice 
you uh, ever received in the line of business in the line of business that you do? What is the best piece of advice that I ever got in the line of business that I do? Um, I think it's probably don't stick to the plan. Don't stick to the plan. Because here's the thing. You always often hear, stick to the plan, stick to the plan. Well, it's okay. You know, Mike Tyson had this great line. He goes, everybody comes into a fight with a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I mean, and, and that's true, right? That's true in life. I mean, in whatever you're doing, whether it's, you know, podcasting, YouTube channeling, movie stuff, video game stuff, uh, other business, whatever, have a plan. You should absolutely have a plan. Have a plan of attack. Understand what, you, what you're doing and where you're going. But don't, quote unquote, stick to the plan regardless of anything else that happens. Because what happens is curveballs come in life and you need to adjust course. Like you can say, I'm sailing my ship from point A to point B in this straight line. Okay, that's great. Well, what happens if you get halfway across the ocean and an island pops up? You, there's an island there that wasn't on your charts that is preventing you from doing a straight line. Are you just going to say, stick to the plan and keep sailing right into that island? Or are you going to go, hey, this is a curveball. Let's adapt. Let's adjust. The plan is not the be-all, end-all. The goal is the be-all, end-all. The plan is just a means to get you to your goal. And if you need to adjust that plan, because remember, the important thing isn't the plan. The important thing is the goal. So don't always stick to the plan. See what life gives you. See what curveballs get thrown at you and adjust course accordingly. I've done that a lot over the years. We just talked about how my plan was to do my podcast with a co-host. Got thrown a curveball. It took a lot more effort than I thought it would. There was a big, it was doing it solo was a lot more easier than doing it with a partner than I thought it would be, blah, blah, blah. So I adjusted. I adjusted. So that's probably the best piece of advice I ever got in this business. All right. Next question comes to us from Zach Wiselski, who writes, how can Comcast slash Universal write course on DreamWorks animation? Look, okay. So as many of you know, Universal just bought DreamWorks. DreamWorks has been struggling a little bit, right? But let me bring in a sports analogy. A lot of people talk about this, like how can they, you know, this team turn this around? How can the, the locker room problems, apparently the team doesn't like each other, how do you fix it? Blah, blah, blah. A great sports commentator once said this, winning fixes everything. Winning fixes everything. I believe that is true in sports. Um, I believe that is true in just about everything. Winning fixes everything. How do they write ship? Well, look, let's remember DreamWorks has put out some really great movies. Okay, yes, they put out Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I Okay, and I, I didn't like that. Uh, yes, they put out Turbo, and I didn't think that was very good. Yes, they put out Megamind. That probably wasn't very good. Yes, they put out Monsters vs. Aliens. Yeah, maybe that wasn't very good. Yes, they put out the B-movie. Maybe that wasn't very good. Yes, they put out Shark Tale, and maybe that wasn't very good. But let's not forget, this is the same studio put out How to Train Your Dragon. This is the same studio put out How to Train Your Dragon 2, which might have been even better than the first half. This is the studio put out Kung Fu Panda and Kung Fu Panda 2, which was awesome, by the way. Both Kung Fu Panda 1 and 2 were both awesome. They put out the Shrek movies, which, yeah, they had one or two weak installments in the Shrek series. But uh, for the most part, those movies are really, really great. 
all they got to do is take a breath, take a step back and say, do what Pixar does and say, let's not worry about what's going to be the most cute. Let's not worry about what's going to be the most marketable. Let's not worry about what's going to do. Let's worry about making a great movie. Let's just make a great movie. Let's start there. Let's do our best to make a great movie. Let's not start first to make a great kid-friendly movie. Let's not start first to be a great marketable movie. Let's not start first with, let's make a great cute movie. No, no, no. Bring it back and let's just say, what? let's make a great movie. Let's make another How to Train Your Dragon. Let's make another like um, Kung Fu Panda. Let's make another Shrek. And I don't mean sequels. I mean, let's make a, another movie like that that is really great, great storytelling, great characters that everybody loves. And if they do that and they knock one out of the park, then pretty... Then, the ship feels righted at that point, right? The ship, the good USS DreamWorks will feel righted with one good thing. Winning fixes everything. I just think they need to kind of reassess and, and reevaluate their strategy at the moment. All right, got time for a couple more. Uh, this one comes from uh, Jerickson uh, Abul, who writes, If Deadpool really was a backdoor for the X-Men in the MCU, would you still complain if there were little to no setup? Avengers name drops or whatever, or just appreciate the fact that it's happening. I, I don't really see Deadpool as a backdoor to the MCU. I really don't. Um, so I guess that kind of ends my answer to that question. Uh, Anthony Zar Zarasua writes, what are your fine main reasons for why Return of the Jedi is your favorite of the Star Wars films? Oh gosh. I mean, there, there's a couple of them. One uh, it is one of the best three-act... It is probably the best three-act structure uh, film of the Star Wars films so far. I just thought it was great. The entire sequence of Vader, Luke, and the Emperor in the Vader scene is, is awesome. To this day, it is the greatest space battle scene, not just in any Star Wars film. It is the greatest space battle scene in film. No movie, no sci-fi sci fantasy film has ever had a space battle scene as good um, as this. The humorous moments in Jedi are probably the best humorous, humorous moments out of all three. Seeing the completion, if you will, of the hero's journey of understanding where Luke Skywalker has come from, from that like farm boy complaining that he wanted to go to Tashi Station and get some power converters to the Jedi Knight that walks into Jabba's palace uh, is just astounding. The character evolutions and arcs for guys like you know, Lando is now is now a hero as opposed to kind of an anti-hero in the, in the second one. We see Han Solo, the completion of his evolution as well. Leia as well. Um, the second Death Star, the Emperor, the Emperor in Return of the Jedi, just so awesome. And the, and the dynamic between the Emperor and Vader is the first time we really got to see that dynamic, notwithstanding the uh, the short scene we had between the two of them with the uh, holographic transmissions in Empire Strikes Back. I I could keep going. I could keep going. Look, I'm not going to argue with anybody and tell them, hey, Star Wars shouldn't be your favorite of the trilogy or hey, Empire shouldn't be your favorite. No, I'm not going to get in that argument. That's fine if, if those are yours. But I believe there are incredibly strong arguments for Return of the Jedi being considered the best of the original trilogy. And like my video said, screw you. I love the Ewoks. I think the Ewoks are great. It's the juxtaposition of the natural world versus the world of industry. It is a great juxtaposition of it is the seemingly and, and ultimately the Ewoks themselves point out the weakness in the empire, right? Just think about it. Go back to the first Star Wars movie where it's like 
hey, the Death Star is so big and so bad, the Empire isn't going to think 30 little fighter ships, like not a, an armada fleet, but 30 rebel ships, little fighters, not even capital class ships. They put, they don't think that poses any threat. And, and that kind of philosophy, that arrogance, if you will, of the Empire plays through into Return of the Jedi, where they don't even, they don't even give a second thought to the natural inhabitants of the world, the natural creatures of this world being the Ewoks. And it's that great juxtaposition of the, of nature versus civilization, of the natural world versus that of the industry, of the Empire. And I love the fact uh, I love the Ewoks. I loved how they were handled. I loved how they were used. I love the fact that even John Schnepp came around to appreciating the Ewoks after we did our uh, Return of the Jedi thing. Um, let's see here. I'm going to skip down. Um, okay, so Bill Ernst. This is the last question I'll take. And it's a good question. It's a personal question. Because how did it feel to move out of Collider Video, the Collider Video headquarters, only to move back in? Um, yeah, here's the thing. So the show I'm doing, my office is still in the Collider Video studios. So Collider is owned by Complex, okay? And Complex is the company that I am doing this new Comic-Con HQ show for. Like the show is Comic-Con and Lionsgate's, their new channel, Comic-Con HQ. And Complex is the production company, if you will. And I am the exec producer showrunner of this show. And I work for Complex. And so Complex owns the Collider studio. And the, uh, I... I couldn't convince them to get us our own and the office space in Los Angeles. I don't, wherever you live, if it's not in New York or Los Angeles, you might think, Hey, office space isn't that expensive in New York and Los Angeles is pretty freaking bloody expensive. And, uh, I built some pretty big space over at the Collider studio when we built that place. And so complex has said, Hey, why don't, since you're still doing heroes and Johnny council too, why don't you move you and your whole team into the Collider video offices? And I was like, I didn't want to do that. Although I love being around all my friends there. Uh, I wanted our own space, but I, I get where Complex was coming from. So uh, it felt pretty okay. I mean, like I've never left. It's home for me. I built that place. I mean, every desk, every chair, every camera, every light, every computer in that place, I picked out. I built that place. I, and so it just kind of feels like being at home. Um, in many ways. And it's great because now it means I still get to have lunch with Dennis every day and all that kind of stuff. So it's, while I wanted our own space, uh, there are benefits. There are benefits to us uh, operating out of this complex facility called the Collider Video Headquarters. So it feels pretty good being there, to be honest. All right, guys, that will do it for me for this installment. How many questions did I get through? I got through a lot, uh, but there's still like 400 more questions <laughs> to go. So sorry, guys, I got through as many as I could. Thanks so much for joining me again. Make sure you're following me on social media. Follow me on Twitter at John Campia. Follow me on Facebook at John Campia. Make sure you subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm going to put up a uh, my review for, pardon me, Kean Peel's new movie, Keanu, which I saw last night. I'm going to put that up either sometime today or early tomorrow. Uh, so watch for that over there. And again, guys, do me the, the favor of taking a second, open up iTunes and find the John Campion podcast and rate and comment on the podcast. That just helps me out a great deal.
All right, guys, that'll do it for me for this installment of the John Campia Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. My name is John Campia, and until next time, bye-bye.